It's no secret. America is in the throes of the most significant public health crisis ever. Addiction and overdose impact millions of families. In 2017, more than 72,000 people died from an accidental drug overdose in the U.S., while more than 88,000 people die annually from alcohol-related causes. Those statistics, while harrowing, don't articulate what substance use looks like from person to person. As a society, we tend to look at substance use as cut and dry, a weakness or character flaw, when in reality, seeking pleasure is about as human as it gets. Avoiding pain is part of our daily cycle. This crisis is beginning to cause people to think about their behaviors and the way they treat others who use substances. So how does someone go from using drugs recreationally to building a tolerance or going through withdrawal? How can a high morph into an overdose? What about the family members who love someone struggling with addiction? What happens to them? Where do you turn when someone you love has died from a substance-related death? It's complicated. But with knowledge and support, hope exists. We are five women under 35 who have loved, lost, and learned more than we ever wanted to about substance use. Our goal is simple, to give a voice to people across the globe impacted by substance use and to let them know they are not alone. By sharing our stories and evidence-based research as our driving force, we hope to open minds and ultimately save lives. Join us, the ladies of Live for Lolly, me, Chelsea Laliberte, Courtney Gunkelman, Jess Weston, Stephanie Cyrus, and our producer, Danny Mastriani, as we use our heroine voices to get sincere, honest, emotional, and probably a bit controversial from time to time. Stigma ends here, but hope begins here. Hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of Heroin Voices. Tonight, we have an absolutely amazing discussion planned with two incredibly special ladies, both of whom I am very lucky to call colleagues and friends. Tonight, we welcome Dr. Beth Dunlap, who is a family practitioner and board-certified addiction medicine provider, currently caring for patients at the Addiction Treatment Program of Lake County Health Department in Lake County, Illinois. And she is also a board member of Live for Lolly and a mom and a wife and one of the most dedicated and hardworking and passionate and caring practitioners I have met in a very long time in this field. We also welcome Diane Geyser, who's a licensed clinical social worker and therapist who has been in private practice for a few decades. Diane specializes in working with clients and their families who are dealing with addiction and dual diagnoses. Diane has been an incredible advisor to me and champion for the work Live for Lolly does and happens to be the supervisor of my private practice at, where I work as a therapist. So this should be an interesting conversation. And you know what? I'm just a better person for knowing these two ladies. So tonight's discussion is going to be focused on addiction and recovery. We're going to talk about diagnosis. We're going to talk about treatment. We're going to talk about harm reduction, recovery plans, and around and around and around and around we go this is going to be a very comprehensive discussion. So listen closely. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks, Chelsea. I know Jess, Courtney, and I are so excited about tonight's discussion. I'll go ahead and kick things off with the first question that I have. So Dr. Dunlap, this one's for you. Can you tell us what exactly is addiction and are there biological factors that increase someone's risk of addiction? Sure. So thanks so much for having me here. It's a real honor to be here with you guys tonight. So in terms of how we think about addiction, there's been several models uh, that have been kind of in play about addiction, but how we really think about it currently is that addiction is a chronic disease that impacts the brain. And it impacts the brain in areas that are responsible for important things like reward and pleasure, motivation, and executive functioning and skills, and kind of how those different areas of the brain talk to each other and are responsible for someone's behavior. I think a really easy way that to think about addiction or about substance use disorders generally is to think about the three C's of addiction. And so those three C's are control, consequences, and cravings. And so going through those a little bit more, patients and people who are struggling with addiction often display kind of a lack of control over use of the substance. They continue to use substances despite seemingly unable to perceive a lot of the consequences of their behavior and will continue to use substances even when their life becomes unmanageable, they put themselves in serious and risky situations, and they often will demonstrate uh, something that we call cravings, which is 
essentially um, very strong urges to continue to take a substance kind of despite all of the harm that that substance use disorder may be causing for, for their health and, and for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Um, we also see uh, a lot of changes to their bodies in terms of tolerance and withdrawal symptoms, um, and those all play into why addiction kind of continues to, to progress for a lot of patients. And so while somebody may initially start to take a drug because they get kind of a reinforcing effect from that drug and a pleasurable effect, as addiction progresses, a lot of times patients are just continuing to use a drug because if they don't, they then go into withdrawal and they have a lot of very terrible symptoms that are related just to that lack of having the drug in their system. And so there's a lot of kind of negative reinforcement then as addiction progresses. And so a lot of my patients, when they first come in to see me, I'll often say, you know, kind of what are your goals for a recovery? You know, what, what do you really want to kind of get out of the initial phases of treatment? And they'll say to me, I just want to feel normal. I just want to feel normal again. And I think that that, there's a lot that underlies that statement. But one of the things that I think talking about in that is that they want this relief from this kind of terrible cycle of, of negative reinforcement that they found themselves in with their addiction. In terms of factors that play into why someone develops a substance use disorder, it's a complicated process why someone may, when exposed to a drug, develop a use disorder. We know that addiction is probably at least 50% genetic, but there's a lot more to that story than just someone's genetics. So I think a good analogy would be to think about other chronic diseases like diabetes where having a family member with diabetes is a very strong risk factor for developing diabetes, but it certainly doesn't tell the whole story. And there's a lot that patients and people who are at risk of diabetes can do to prevent diabetes or to kind of prolong the, the time period of their life before developing diabetes. So there's a lot that goes into play with a lot of these chronic illnesses that people face. I think that one thing that I see a lot in my practice um, is that patients often have a, a very strong family history of addiction but they also have been exposed, many of them, to drugs very early on, often before the age of 15. Just something about the impact of substances on the developing adolescent brain that can really impact kind of the, the chronicity of, of their course of addiction and developing just from substance misuse to something that's more serious like addiction. There's also a lot of, I think, other factors that can go into why vulnerable people develop uh, substance use disorders. One thing that I see a lot in my practice is um, early childhood stressors, early childhood trauma particularly. And then what I often see is that, um, well, trauma can certainly play into why somebody initially uses a substance and they continue to use that and develop a substance use disorder then people who are um, suffering with addiction are then often traumatized just because of what can happen to somebody in the course of their addiction. So there's a lot that goes into play for why patients who have this genetic vulnerability um, develop addiction and then what, how that, that progresses. So it's not like you wake up one day and say, I want to use drugs today. Right. I want to be addicted to drugs. Exactly. Despite popular belief. Exactly. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions, too, is hearing from a lot of people that say, well, I've used drugs and I'm not addicted to it, so why can't that person just stop? Mm -hmm. If only it was that easy. Right. So, I mean, the, you know, the good news about this is that like other chronic diseases, these are manageable disorders if given the appropriate support and the right kind of treatment at the right time. And that, you know, when I see a patient in clinic, what I target for that patient and what I'm hopeful for all of my patients is that we can you know, get them into long-term recovery and long-term remission of their symptoms and that we can get them healthier into a better place. And people come in at all sorts of different kind of stages of change and all sorts of different motivations may bring them in. And I think it's important to kind of meet each person where they're at, no matter where they are kind of along that um, development of their, of their recovery process. That was like one of the best breakdowns of addiction I think I've heard in a very, very long time. Diane, do you have anything to add to that? I would, I mean, I would ditto everything you said. I was sitting there looking at Chelsea and just shaking my head, wow. I think the important piece that you talked about is the genetics, but the other things that play a part. And I think, as you talked about, the brain 
and the the pleasure center and that we're just really understanding more about it so people get into recovery and they think they're doing well but their brain is still telling them to use that substance and that's not something they can see like if you have a broken leg you have a cast on it you can't see this disease because it's internal and I think that that's where we it's so important to be able to educate people about that and it's not failure but it's beginning to understand your body and know that it's there's the cravings are coming from the brain it's not a weakness it's not a it's just something that you can't see and you can be going to meetings you can do smart recovery but your brain is still telling you and being triggered by that you know I was in that situation and I would use you get in that situation again and your brain is triggered to do it again and again and then the thing I think you said was really important was the long-term recovery that it takes a long time for the brain to recover and people think, oh, I'm done with treatment, and I go two weeks, three weeks, and I'm good to go. But your brain isn't healed. So. And the brain does heal. We yes, know that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we also know, like you said, that there's no quick fixes here. Right. And often these things have developed often over decades for patients. Um, and it takes a long time to unravel and untangle kind of a, a lot of what has gone into the development and, and the progression of, of someone's addiction. And many people, I think, as you touched, I mean, start to, you know, they use maybe a substance for another disorder. They have anxiety, they have whatever, and they start to use it. And it helps them feel better, but that's not their intention to get addicted to that substance, but that relief that they get either from anxiety or some trauma that they've had in their life makes them continue to use that drug. The things that work so well in the short term end up not being absolutely so helpful in the long run right right and I think the other thing you said was very important is the younger that you start Mm -hmm. you know those executive functions of the brain decision making impulse control are still developing until we're like 24 25 years old Mm -hmm. and so if you start using a substance does that part of the brain ever really you know develop So then you have somebody who's in recovery a year and they're having decision-making problems, impulse control. It's still there because their brain hasn't caught up yet to that recovery process. So we're seeing a lot more elderly patients from either surgeries Mm -hmm. or pain management becoming addicted to opioids. What do you think leads to that as you talk about oftentimes younger people trying drugs and then that leads to an addiction? What do you think led to that progression of addiction for elderly patients? Well, I mean, if they're prescribed the medication, then, you know, if they're, they get relief and it feels better. There's also, I think, research that shows younger people and older people have a higher risk of becoming addicted. The elderly people become addicted out of, you know, maybe loneliness, not being, mm-hmm. so they use substances to fill that that emptiness in their life. A lot of people that quit, you know, finish jobs, retire, their families are gone away, that they, you know, begin to use the substance and it fills that emptiness that they've got. So that, but I think you could answer better that. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that the, you know, the important point there is that anyone can be kind of at any stage of life potentially vulnerable to addiction. Yes. And that, you know, the the exposure to the drug is important, but it's also kind of everything that goes along with that, and that there are a lot of similar shared risk factors in young people as well as in elderly people, just with the kind of, as you said, social impairment and isolation. Um, you know, there's also a lot more often chronic pain in older people. Older people often metabolize medications very differently mm-hmm. um, or on kind of other medications that might you know, change the effect or the impact kind of the risk level um, see with some of those medications in, in the older patient population. And I think one of the things you also said, Dr. Bout, was, you know, what is the treatment plan? And thinking about when you see a physician, many times they're going to write you a prescription, but they don't tell you that there's five. And I work with, when I work in my private practice, I always tell people there's five options. You can take the meds, you can take a, you know, a class on, coping, anger management, mindfulness. So try to give them other ways to get that feeling of relief besides just the, the drug coping. or the, yeah. So mm-hmm. do something else. And I think if we can educate the medical community to not just write the prescription, but to say, 
hey, you know what, try mindfulness, try a yoga class, try something that can fill in that. Because if it feels good, you're going to keep doing it. And if the only option you have is a drug, you're going to keep taking it. And then the body takes over. You no longer have that choice to take that drug anymore. The body's telling you you need that drug. Yes, I think that was my main question for you, is there a correlation between mental health and addiction? I think that answered it right there, head on. Yeah. But I think, you know, um, there is definitely a correlation. I mean, if you look at the research, most, some of the things that I just looked at recently, adolescents, 60% of the adolescents in treatment have a dual diagnosis. There's something else going on for them. And, you know, we used to always say back in, as long as I've been in private practice, you know, the chicken before the egg, what came first? You know, did they have the anxiety and they self-medicated or what? It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that we have to treat both. Mm-hmm. And you can't just tell somebody, oh, your anxiety is going to go away if you stop using. It doesn't. It gets worse many times. Yes. And to tell a person that and not give them a resource like a yoga class or a mindfulness, I mean, I would tell people, you know, Go skydiving. If you want that risk-taking feeling, go do it. Do something that's going to make you feel that same feeling, but make sure it's something that's positive. But the feeling that you want to get, you can't, a lot of times you can't take that away. You want that feeling. Find it in a way that's not going to kill you. And, you know, I just think we really do a disservice to our clients when we say if you go to meetings and you stop using, you know, you're going to get better. And they're just... If they have true anxiety, that needs to be addressed as well. It's really thinking about the person in a very kind of comprehensive and complete way. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because when I, I recently become a counselor and when I was in my training program, the terminology and the discussion around working with patients or clients was always to expect a mental health issue, to expect a reason, ask why. Right not have somebody come into your office because they think so they're telling you they have a substance use disorder or what they think might be one to already assume that there's going to be some reason why they're doing it instead of just treating the substance use disorder and that's the conundrum we've gotten ourselves in in this field of just treating what's on the surface and not digging deep and there's many many reasons why that happens and also another thing of expecting relapse if you, what Dr. Dunlap is saying is true, it's a chronic relapsing brain disease, no matter whether or not they're using, there's a relapse process going on. So you have to be able to uh, deal with that at all the realms of it. And not what's interesting, to, what you're saying, Chelsea, about the, the dual diagnose, when I, in the co-concurrent disorders, when I worked my first treatment center, there were separate units for people who had substance use and people who had a dual diagnose. And it was like these were the different people that had a dual diagnose and the people that were substance use, like, you're good to go. So we absolutely treated them separately 20 years ago. I mean, it was like you were, like, really sick. if you, And then if you had an eating disorder on top of it or you had something else, like, you were, like, really, you know, now you're a case that really needs a lot of help. So I think, you know, this is, we've learned so much. In the years. And we're still struggling with that Absolutely. concept of not separating mental health from substance use and, and treating the whole person, like you guys just right. said before. That's mm-hmm. still something that we, as a, as a field, right. have not been doing appropriately. So we've got a long way to go. We right. really do. I think it's also important to not forget the physical health of the patient as well. Yeah. We know that a lot of patients with serious mental illness, they died on average decades earlier than you know, norm, what's considered normal life expectancy. And a lot of those are related to, you know, to cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. um, and to smoking-related illnesses. And so you know, those, are, those are things that are always kind of at, at each patient visit that I have, I always try to spend at least some time on thinking through smoking cessation for my patients and thinking about their cholesterol and their heart health and they have they gotten their pap smears um, and all those things that can often you know fall by the wayside or kind of you know be put on the back burner when somebody's you know struggling with active addiction and then it's I think a really important part of the recovery process to start to address all of those um, you know really important physical health needs one thing that I 
have enjoyed so much in my practice. And actually one of the reasons that I started seeing so many patients with addiction and realized that this was truly where my heart was, was that I started treating a lot of patients with hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. And I realized that what was something that was very common to all of them was that they often had struggled with addiction and they were um, kind of in different phases of recovery. And I started to explore a little bit more those histories and I just fell in love with with those patients. Mm -hmm. I was focusing in those patients first on their physical health and then I realized that there was just this whole other kind of dimension to these patients that was just incredibly rewarding and very humbling for me to you know be there in a room and hear some of these stories. But I do think that kind of as we focus more on especially opioid use disorder or opioid addiction, it's really important to remember a lot of the other physical, you know, medical conditions that go along with those, and in particular, hepatitis C. And that's a really good point in terms of the physical in my practice. You know, many, the first thing I do is tell people to go and get a physical, you know, and they can come in and say they're depressed. They go, they get their physical, they come back, and their vitamin D is low. Mm-hmm. And, you know, immediately the, they want to prescribe or they're depressed, put them on an antidepressant, mm-hmm. it's vitamin D is low. So so you're from one side of it, I'm on the other side of it going, okay, I'm not a physician, but I know that I want to rule that out because mm-hmm. I have somebody coming in my office who I might be working with who has what I think is depression and in reality, it's got low vitamin D that can be taken care of, and then we can work on whatever the issues may be. So working together on that physical aspect is critical as well. So one of the things that I struggle with, and I think a lot of the listeners may struggle with, is differentiating between using, misusing, and addiction. What is the difference between those? All right, so the way I would answer that is, is I think um, the doctor said, we, it's a chronic disease, so it's progressive, it's chronic. People will have early stages of, of symptoms that you can see in terms of using. Try, they may start out socially using and they have no effects in their life. As they become dependent or more dependent on it, um, then you're going to see more severe symptoms and effects. One of the things we look at is the physical, how they're affected physically. So um, anyone who thinks that they may have an issue with the substance use or is am I using too much, am I drinking too much, is go to your physician and have, you know, some blood work done. The second thing you want to do is look at the phys- all the physical parts in your life. Are you isolating more? You know, did you work out three or four times a week? Now you're not working out anymore. You know, your appetite is low. Your sleep is disturbed. It doesn't have to be really bad. It can just be once or twice a month that you, if you see that kind of stuff going on for yourself. As you progress, emotionally things will happen. You'll have more mood swings. You'll be more frustrated. So it, it's just chronic and it's additional. It adds up. You know, you want to look at the social. I'd rather sit and have a drink than go out with my friends. You know, or I want to drink before I go out with my friends. So those are the kind of things that I think you go from using socially to, you know, when you go out, you're going out to have fun and socialize with people. Well, if you're using alcohol now, before you even go out, you may want to take a look at that or any other substance. It can be used that same way. I don't know what you would say, Doc. Yeah, you know, I think that reminds me of a patient who I actually saw today who was in recovery from alcohol use disorder. And he was reflecting on the situation that led him to seek treatment in the first place. And he told me everything in my life had just narrowed down into just I was only focused on the alcohol that there was nothing else it was like I was living in a tunnel and there was nothing else and I couldn't find a way out of that and when I woke up in the morning I was already sick and I was already in withdrawal and I just wanted to feel normal and better but I could couldn't find my way kind of out of that situation and that patient again had a had a very strong family history of substance use disorders so definitely had some genetic vulnerability there also had early life trauma um, and it started out, as you said, you know, a social drinker, you know, for men, we would consider um, kind of non-problematic drinking to be about two drinks a day. He was 
well within that healthy limit for a long time. Um, and then something happened with his life and he started drinking more and more to try to cope with some of his evolving mood symptoms and some of the stress that he was having at home and then started to drink just to get out of bed and started to drink just to alleviate mm -hmm. um, the shakiness and the withdrawal symptoms. And then, you know, kind of as things progressed for him, then a lot of areas of his life became severely impacted by his addiction and then kind of drank just, you know, to help him cope mm -hmm. the side effects of his addiction. Um, you know, wonderfully, of course, for this patient, he is um, another one of my patients who's in long-term remission, and he's been, you know, very stable with both medication help and a lot of, of support and therapy. But I think that he said it very well mm. when he was relaying his experience of, you know, progression to, to a serious use disorder. And I think the other, what comes to my mind, too, is you know, the disease, just the word disease, and this speaks to kind of the craving piece. I always use this when Chelsea and I are in group, but dis-ease, when you break it up, it's disease or discomfort in your own body. And when you're using a substance and you become uncomfortable in your own skin, like you're not getting the rewards from drinking anymore, you're not getting the rewards that you're starting to feel guilty, you're starting to feel shame about it, you're hiding it. That's a real good sign that, you know, it's not giving you the payoff that you mm -hmm. initially started using for. Um, it's turning into something that could be destructive. And I think a lot of people have questions about um, what does it mean to have a craving yes. or what is an urge or what is a trigger um, and kind of how those are all intertwined. So a, a lot of patients... Um, just because of some of the conditioned responses that go along with their addiction, meaning that kind of in the brain, one thing called a trigger will kind of be associated very strongly with the use of a particular substance. And so every time then a patient may be exposed to a certain trigger, that will then lead to a very, very strong kind of overwhelming both physical, emotional, mental response, which is what we what we call a you know a severe urge or, or a craving, um, and that can often become very overwhelming for the patient, and that is a lot of what drives kind of the continued use and some of the struggles, especially early on in the recovery process. Because um, if we use the example of someone who is in recovery from alcohol use disorder, of course triggers to drink are kind of all around us in society. That there's you know, alcohol is ubiquitous at social events, that we, it's difficult to even go grocery shopping without, you know, passing alcohol. And those are all, um, can be very strong external triggers um, for these very, very strong kind of internal reactions, cravings uh, for, for, for a substance. Um, I think what's can be a lot trickier, but I think a lot more kind of important often to explore with patients is the idea that a lot of triggers are also internal and those might be things like we've talked about like you know poorly managed anxiety or symptoms that are related to PTSD or trauma and sometimes it's very difficult for a patient to identify where a lot of these internal triggers are coming from and that's why for a lot of patients that those that is a process that um, takes a lot of time um, to kind of manage and, and unpack. A lot of people, I think, you know, cravings are very, very distressing. They're extremely uncomfortable and they're really scary and very overwhelming to people. And um, that's when people need to do things like call their sponsor and call their mom or engage in distraction and do all of these things that, you know, will help them manage that craving and will help them kind of get through those, those difficult moments. And, you know, I usually counsel my patients that every time that they successfully do that, like every time mm -hmm. that they are triggered and they have a craving and they get through that and they ride that wave and they call their mom and mm -hmm. they call their doctor or their therapist or whoever, and they breathe and it passes that that is part of how the brain heals and recovers. And then the next time that they're triggered by something that that is incrementally a tiny bit easier for them to manage each time that goes on and that it's okay to, you know, experience that 
and to be scared because these are very overwhelming symptoms, but it's also a really important part of that recovery process. And that's why people really need to have those people in their life that they can reach out to, that they can, you know, talk about their experience in a way that, you know, is going to get them through those those difficult craving waves. And so what you're saying is they're teaching their, you know, when they call up somebody, they're teaching their brain that this is a reward. It may not feel as great mm-hmm. as the, the substance, but the more you do it, and I always tell people, patients that I work with, that you're like the pleasure side, where all the things you used to have fun, you know, leisure and fun and all this, it's atrophy, that side of your brain. And the other side of your brain, whereas the addiction, it's like, this is the best, this is kick-ass, man. And then the other side is... It's like it, it isn't as much fun. And the more you do it, it's like it levels out. And it, this becomes less and this becomes more. So every time they call a sponsor, every time they call their mom, it's like, okay, it goes up and then it goes up and it feels better and this goes down. So we're, you know, we're rewiring the brain and we're teaching people that you can heal from this. Mm-hmm. The other thing, Doc, I was wondering if you could talk about when people have dreams like using dreams, mm-hmm. because I think that's really, really frightening for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I talk about sleep all the time. We all love napping. And I think that, you know, a lot of our patients will experience a great deal of disrupted sleep for a lot of reasons. So in the case of recovery from alcohol use disorder, um, there's evidence that shows that it takes about a year for people's sleep to recover kind of after that first entry into treatment and that last drink. And that's just kind of as part of the recovery from the substance itself. That doesn't go along with, you know, nightmares related to trauma or anything else. Using dreams are also, I think, very normal and Mm -hmm. very almost universally felt. And, you know, I usually tell my patients that that does not mean that there is anything wrong with you or Mm -hmm. that you're not going to get better or that your treatment is failing or won't work. That just means that you have suffered from addiction and this is an experience that your brain is used to having. So what I think is interesting about what you guys are saying, so many people think like, oh, if somebody's in recovery, they shouldn't even think about using. They shouldn't even have a dream. Having a dream, like that's, you know, there's this family pressure and societal pressure to just this concept of avoid anything having to do with your substance use. And it's such a myth and it, it really can't be done. It just can't be done in that way. And so I think what's interesting is it's really how you respond to the triggers that are coming up, how you respond to the urges, to the cravings. You know, what's interesting about relapse is that it starts happening months before you actually use a substance. It starts you know, the moment that you were saying, Dr. Dunlap, that trigger happened. Mm -hmm. And you may not even know that the trigger happened. It may come up for you weeks later. And then you're like, oh, shit, that conversation with my dad was awful. And you may be feeling anxious and horrible about it. And you might start to see the mental capacity or, or whatever you were working on kind of fall apart. You may start to see emotionally and physically the, the things that you were working on kind of start to fall apart, which is why it's so important for audience members who are listening to this to understand that not only is this illness very comprehensive in how it works in the brain and in how, and how many elements of a person's life it involves, is that it must also be treated comprehensively. And that's really the point. Society is saying, go to a meeting, you know, just let it roll off your back, go to a meeting, talk to them about, yeah, that's a really good strategy if that's a part of your recovery plan. What if you don't want to be at a meeting? What if, you know, so, so we have to really start rewiring our brains, meaning society's brains to start thinking about this differently, because all I'm hearing Diane and Beth say is that you can retrain the brain, but it takes a lot of really evidence-based strategies to get there that are physical, that are mental, that are medical, and they're holistic, mind, body, spirit, soul, everything. And there's not a one note answer to this. Dreams, super common. I meet so many people who have musing dreams. How do you deal with the using dream? That's how we respond to that in treatment. Yes. And I think what's important is what you said around the myth that people are, and this is a disease that is just overshadowed with a lot of shame and guilt. So if somebody has a using dream, they don't even go to AA, they don't even go to Smart Recovery, they don't even talk about it because they're so ashamed that they had it. 
So this is why it's so important for us to be able to upfront as soon as somebody comes into your office. You're going to have, you might have using dream. And if you do, I want to hear about it. You don't have to be ashamed. It doesn't mean you're in a bad spot. So I think that myth that you're talking about, there's just so much shame around the disease and that we need to, you know, just help people go to the resources and utilize the resources in an honest way. That's what they're there for. Right. Not to go in and go, oh, I can't tell my sponsor that because they're going to think I'm relapsing. Right. But but, and and when we get into those cycles, we do things like we don't tell our sponsor when when we are craving using heroin again and then you go out and use heroin and you die from an overdose mm-hmm. what so so that is where we have i guess in essence failed societally and as a profession to respond to addiction and recovery appropriately going to a meeting there's a lot behind that yeah. it's not just go to a meeting and check it off your list it's right. to connect with people mm-hmm. and so chelsea in go a, in and talk to your doctor go right. in and tell your therapist don't be embarrassed that you have that going on. You know, oh, my doctor's working so hard, I don't want to tell him or tell her that I, you know, I had a using dream. For God's sakes. Have the conversation. Yes. Your doctor is expecting it, man. Yeah. They know you're having using but dreams. If you they don't, know you're having craving. But if you don't tell them in the session, you know, or you don't tell them when they come mm-hmm. through your door, they're going to be embarrassed to do it. It's very easy to become stuck in our own heads and to replay things that we worry about you know, kind of over and over. And I think that that's where I always want to encourage my patients that it's okay to talk about having those feelings. It's very normal. It's okay to talk about the very real reasons why people use drugs and kind of what even some the grieving process that can go along with um, the recovery process. It's all totally okay to talk about. And I think that that kind of honesty is a very healing part of recovery. You guys have talked a lot about what therapists and doctors can do to support somebody in recovery. What about family and loved ones without the medical backgrounds and knowledge? Well, the first thing when you said the three C's, and I was thinking of the three C's for families that I always tell family members, Mm -hmm. and it's you didn't cause it, you didn't cure it, and you can't control it. And so the only ammunition a family member really has is education. Become educated. Go to the, you know, go to the doctor. If you think something's going on and you don't have a release of information, call the doctor and leave a message. They may not, they can't tell you. But if you're really concerned about a family member, call and leave a message. Become educated. Go to self-help meetings. Do what you need to do. Because if you don't have education, you cannot fight this disease. You have to be educated. I often think back to some of the stories that my patients have told me about when they were at very dark points in their life, that there was just one person in their life that somehow was at the right moment and was able to start them on a journey of transformation or save their life in an overdose or just be at the other end of a phone and just listen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope that, like in my own private life, that I have opportunities like that, you know, to be that person for someone kind of outside of my professional life. Um, And not just with with addiction, too, you know, just with suicidal thoughts is um, another really, you know, kind of good example of that is that, like, sometimes we never really know who we can touch and in what ways. And sometimes it can be the smallest thing for somebody who... You know, as we said, this isn't a broken leg. We can't see it, and it's all inside. So I often think of that, you know, kind of personally, too. If I'm having a bad day, you know, what's the person on, like, the other end mm-hmm. of the line or just treating people with a little bit of kindness and compassion? Yeah, I think as a society, we have to do a better job of not being so afraid of what happens when we ask questions mm-hmm. of people in our lives. Even if it's just your coworker who you don't really know very well, but you can tell that something's going on with them mm-hmm. just to say, hey, you want to go grab a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or, hey, I'm going, you know, out after this. Do you want to come and hang out with me? I mean, even just acknowledging that person might mm-hmm. make their whole day. Mm-hmm. So the, the cycle that we've gotten into as a society is avoid, 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 deny, deny, deny. And that is how we get through life. That's their problem. That is not my problem. Well, what we see now is 192 deaths a day. We see suicides going up like crazy. We see lots of self-harm. We see increased 
you know, just kind of destruction in the lives of Americans. And it's our all of our responsibility, truly, I believe, to ask the questions, no matter how hard they are. You have no idea when somebody is desperately reaching out for you and right. you, they don't even know it. Those are impactful moments that really do make a difference. You think that somebody in your life is struggling with a substance use issue? My mom always says this, it's better to lose a friend because you cared than to not actually ever ask the question or care at all. I mean, I mean, there's a way to say it. You know, I wouldn't go in, in, and be like, hey, dude, I think you're an addict. Like, that's not really helpful. We don't use the word addict here. So, um, but but to say, hey, you know, I've just noticed some things, you know, I, I, you seem distant, you know, you you seem like you're isolating a little bit more, like you want to talk, you know, just just opening the door and they may not they may not walk through the door and that's got to be okay too but maybe continuing and following up with that person and saying like hey i'm concerned about this person like i'm going to stay on them you never know when that person will take you up on your offer and then beyond that if you don't know where the resources are you know you can reach out to organizations like ours like live for lolly and we can give you some helpful hints the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids is actually like a really good, strong website for families when they're looking for help, um, facing addiction. Um, you know, our own Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has some really good resources. So there's a wealth of information and support out there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's so important for families and friends to just jump on when they see an opportunity. You don't have to know everything about what that person is going through. You don't even have to know a little bit. Just ask them how they're doing. Simple questions. Well said, Chelsea. It's so simple. You guys, it's so, so simple. And we have so overcomplicated this in our society. It's like people are afraid to like piss people off or like get on their bad side. And I think politics and election stuff, I think this doesn't really help. You know, people are very sensitive and, and we get that. But there's ways to say things, ways to not say them. <laughs> on that note, Chelsea or Dr. Dunlap or Diane, what else can the common person do to end the epidemic? How can we help combat stigma? And how overall can we help reduce that very large daily overdose number? We're all sitting here looking at each other, shaking our heads, because it is, a, it, honestly, for me, it's a mounting issue that is very hard to answer. We don't know how we're going to dig ourselves out of this epidemic because it's so, it's so large and it's so broad. So my approach to this is thinking global, acting local. If there's something that you can do in your own community or even in your own network, your own family to help, volunteering at a recovery organization or just let, getting Narcan, getting trained in naloxone and having it on you and saying, hey, friends, I have naloxone. Do you need naloxone if you're using opioids or any drug really that could be laced with opioids? You know, it's just taking that extra step and being a little bit bolder. You know, it's just doing something different, doing something different than you would normally do, which is doing anything, really, at this point. And again, I just go back to the whole idea of education. If I can educate someone, um, whether it's a client or in my profession, educate people about harm reduction, that there's doctors out in the community that understand addiction and are not going to shame you they're gonna help you get through the recovery process so I think it's we have an obligation to help at least in my profession I have an obligation to educate people in the profession and if you're a family member to try to you know just get as much education as you can and there's a lot of information out there for you yeah you know I think we've talked a little bit about this that I think for many people, the stigma and the shame and the guilt that is associated with their addiction is just as damaging, mm-hmm. if not more so, than many of the effects of the substance itself. And so I think that every, you know whatever we can do as individuals and communities to make these safe places for you know self-disclosure and discovery and wellness, and to create you know spaces that are welcoming to all, mm-hmm. you know I think will go a very long way. Chelsea mentioned the A word, addict, and I think language matters mm-hmm. a lot. Yes, um, you know, so yes, I, I always try to use language that is you know centered on the person. So, is someone an addict or are they a mom with a substance use disorder? Right. Those are very different things. Mm-hmm. They mean very different things, and so I think that there's ways, both small and large, like Chelsea said, that we can 
you know, kind of address a lot of these layers that we have in society that create a lot of the, the stigma and the shame that doesn't have to be there. And it really starts within ourselves. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. It frustrates me more than anything when people just assume that people should just stop having these judgmental ideas in their head. We're a product of our society. It's okay to have a prejudice thought. Mm -hmm. It's okay to have a judgment. You can't make progress if you don't have those thoughts because you first have to be aware that they exist. So if you have a feeling of, oh, homeless guy in the street, go get a job. I mean, like, if that's how you feel about that, you like take a look at that and ask yourself, like, why am I thinking this way? And maybe next time challenge yourself to, like, give the homeless guy a protein bar when you pass by him or just wave. Hi, I see you. You're not invisible. Like, it's you're there. I see you. We're connecting. Like, something small like that. Like, what are the things that you struggle with when you think about addiction and people who have an addiction? or misuse substances, or your buddy who can't stop using various drugs and it's so frustrating because he spends all of his money on drugs and not on his rent. I mean, mm-hmm. where are you coming from with that? Because it's not your job to judge that person. It's your job to love that person. But I think, Chelsea, people believe, the people that are homeless or whatever, that that's what addiction is or that's what substance mm-hmm. use is. They don't realize that their next-door neighbor can be addicted, that it can be mm-hmm. the mom with the... with you know, kids, that it it could be your friends. It doesn't mean that you have to be like this homeless person to have a substance use disorder. Everyone in this room has been affected by it. And, you know, I think it, it we have to open up our eyes that it isn't like, oh, I don't need to deal with it because it's not in my backyard. It is in your backyard. Right. And it may mm-hmm. be in your family. And you have to open up your eyes. I think the most important thing is to just continue to have these kind of conversations. You know, in my practice, there's certainly patients that I've struggled with kind of managing my own emotional reactions Mm -hmm. to whatever it is that we're currently dealing with. I have people that I trust, colleagues that I trust that I can call and I can say, hey, you know, I have this pregnant woman with this Mm -hmm. substance use disorder and this is how I feel. And This is what I'm struggling with. There's people that I can go to and have those conversations and they can remind me that is a patient first. That is a patient that has a substance use disorder. And we kind of go on from that. Um, But continuing to have kind of this person-centered focus in all those conversations, I think is really important. Yeah, we have a workforce prejudice issue because guess what? Humans are in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And when you have humans, you have all sorts of ideas. I mean... Right. So it's hard. I mean, Diane and I, we run a treatment group and there are times after treatment group where we're sitting there looking at each other like frustrated. Like mm-hmm. we know that these issues are coming up and, and we really have to talk ourselves, right. you know, down to say, OK, let's really get down to basics with what this person is dealing with. Right. It's not our job to get frustrated. It's our job to help them. Right. And, so as, how you do we said, get back to that and as you said earlier, Doc, when you first started talking is take them where they are. You know, if a person wants to, you know, continue to use the substance but is willing to become educated and they're willing to come and see you, then take them where they are. Don't, well, it's got to be my way or the highway. Then you, you, you lose people. So one misconception that society has is that there's only one way to seek treatment. And I think most people automatically assume that that's by attending some sort of meeting to aid in their recovery. Can one of you instead explain what somebody should do if they are open to going through treatment, really what steps that they should take are? You know, I think that there are many pathways to recovery. I think that if we use opioid use disorder, opioid addiction as an example, we'll often um, have patients that have been told in the past to go to AA or NA, you know, to seek group meetings. And those are very valuable kind of peer support type interventions for someone's addiction, but that's not professional or medical treatment. And it's, I think, important to realize that for many patients with addiction, that that disease can be immediately life-threatening. And going to a peer support meeting, while that can be very valuable um, in terms of producing connection and meaning, that that is not 
the appropriate intervention for people at every stage of recovery often is not going to be the appropriate kind of level of care, which is what we call it um, in addiction medicine, um, for patients that are kind of just starting out. Because a lot of times those patients' needs are, are huge and their risk is very, very high of overdose or having something else bad happen to them before they can become stabilized. So that's why, you know, in medicine, we always recommend that people start with professional licensed people that are trained to evaluate people that are suffering from addiction and help them make appropriate treatment plans that are going to be um, safe and effective for whatever level of care and need that they're going to require. I think that's very, very important particularly when we are talking about opioid addiction and concerns about overdose risk and risk of infectious disease and the need for stabilization of those patients. We also have extremely effective medications for patients that have opioid use disorder. And we know that for patients, while recovery is possible without the use of medications, that most people are going to stabilize the best have the lowest risk, and have the greatest chance for long-term remission if they're able to access one of those approved medications. The patients that go and just do a detox, which simply just means removing drugs from someone's body, that's not treatment. Going to AA, it's not treatment. Going and seeing a primary care doctor or an addiction medicine doctor or going to a licensed evidence-based treatment program that uses medication, that is treatment. Um, And that's what we know works for patients. Um, Methadone works. Methadone is highly stigmatized, but methadone has decades and decades of medical evidence behind the fact that it saves people's lives. It reduces HIV. It reduces hepatitis C. It reduces incarceration. Everything that really means something to patients um, and to our society, methadone works. Buprenorphine works. Vivitrol or or long-acting naltrexone, that works. And so, you know, while AA or NA or other kind of peer supports or other types of interventions might be very valuable to patients, that's not treatment. And then you add in the layers of uh, the actual counseling piece, which is huge. It's a huge part of it. So the American Society of Addiction Medicine recommends that you treat, we treat opioid use disorders and alcohol use disorders through medication-assisted treatment, with evidence-based counseling interventions and methodologies that somebody like Diane could provide, a licensed clinical social worker, and recovery supports. A combination of those things. And recovery looks so vast. Recovery is such a broad term that we have totally botched up with our kind of like, you know, the intervention show on A&E and Dr. Drew's version of what recovery means. Recovery is very broad. Recovery includes stabilizing, you know, your, your network, legal issues, job, housing. Where are you going to live? Are you trying to reestablish relationships with people in your life that you have broken? Your support system. It's not just going to a meeting because what does that mean? A meeting is a part of a formal program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, a 12-step modality, whatever it is that has a formal program attached to it. And while those are incredibly, incredibly effective, it's very, very different from treatment. And I think, Chelsea, the thing is, you go to an AA and NA Smart Recovery, it's one hour. Your your brain and the cravings and the addiction is 24-7. So you're going and you go to a meeting for one hour, but you're going to be dealing with a lot of other issues. So my, I mean, I really feel like the physical piece you have to find a doctor who's an addictionologist who really knows something about addiction. Um, you need a therapist. There's many, many therapists out there that are going to say they work in, in addiction. Really look them up and see if they do because, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be sure that people have experience and know where to send you. The 12-step meetings and smart recovery those are another option, but you've got to really combine all of those to really have effective. And the one thing I, re- I wanted to say, for people who are in the workplace, that you can go to your EAP, Employee Assistance Program. And the Employee Assistance Program, it's confidential. So if you have a drug or an alcohol problem, you can go to the EAP and they will send you to an outside resource. And you can get 
help through that. So if you're, you know, oh my God, I can't let my boss know. You don't have to let your boss know because the EAP is typically off-site. They are not going to be in the same building and they, re, they, you, they pay through a number. So you become a number in their system. So your name is not given. So that's really important for people to, to know that that's available as well. So get a physical, be involved in therapy, be involved in a 12-step or smart recovery or some kind of a program like that, and really start to build your support system up in terms of who can help you stay on the on the path to recovery. If that's your family, it's friends, go to the gym, start working out, you know, try a yoga class. I always tell people, your recovery is like a smorgasbord. You know, I can give you 50 things to do and you pick off the menu which one helps you stay sober if that's what you want or harm reduction, I don't care. My job is to keep putting something else on the menu so that you find what works for you. So that's critical. And interestingly to that point, you know, many of the accepted definitions of of recovery, like from major medical and behavioral health organizations, do not include the word abstinence. And I think for many patients, abstinence is kind of the cornerstone of their recovery and very important. But I think that that is not necessarily true for everyone Mm -hmm. at kind of every stage of their journey. Right. And I think it's really important to point out that SAMHSA, so again, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration of this country, actually defines recovery in four categories, home, health, purpose, and community. So if you think about how basic those terms sound, that's really how a recovery plan should be built, around Mm -hmm. those concepts. If you don't feel purpose, which we haven't even talked about yet, that's like a whole other podcast. If you don't feel like you're contributing to society in some way or that you have a purpose or you're here for a certain mm-hmm. reason, it's going to be really hard to motivate you to find mm-hmm. a, a place to live, mm-hmm. to focus on your health, to build a community around you. Right. It's really, really hard to do if it's not done at the same time. And I also just wanted to add that families also need to be in recovery. Right. Recovery is not just for the person with a substance use mm-hmm. issue. Recovery is for the family and the community. You know, if you're a loved one and you have a child who's using and you're listening to this right now, you need to be in recovery just as much as your child does. And that could be done in multitude of ways. And let me tell you, we have, I can't even tell you how many people I've actually worked with. When their family is not involved in the recovery process or unwilling to be open to change, it's very, very hard for that person to sustain long-term recovery. They need the support of their family. We at Live for Lolly offer a few family and friends meetings. You can go to Al-Anon. You can go to Naranon. I mean, there are so many different family communities out there. It's just really important that holistically, we, I guess when we talk about holistics, it includes the family. And well. you know, Chelsea, when you say that, it reminds me of so many times when I've had people come to me who is a family member. And they want to hire me to do an intervention. And it's like, well, did you ask the person, do you do you want to go to treatment? And they're like, no, I didn't. And I mean, I had a case where I had a lady who was coming in and she kept going, oh, God, my friend, she's got such a problem, problem. I keep telling her to come here. And then eventually the spouse came and, you know, oh, my God, you know, the drinking is so bad, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, did you ask her? No. She went home and she asked. She was in treatment in 24 hours. Like, she wanted help, but they were so afraid to talk about it and ask. It was like some stigma, like, oh, my God, you know, and it's like I got to do millions of dollars and do an intervention when all they had to do was go home and say, do you want to go to treatment? Oh, God, I thought you'd never ask. And that person is sober like three years now. Simply asking, yes. do you want asking treatment? Question. Yeah, and we think, you know, we got to do all this stuff and stand on our heads and, you know, how are we going to approach this? And it's just ask them, do you want to get help? Um, And the the last thing, don't just Google and go to any treatment center. You've got to really find a treatment center that is solidly based and not just going to see what your insurance is. So, you know, please, Live for Lally is a great resource. There's so many resources out there that can help you find places to go to get treatment. Yeah, treatment centers hate us because we have become the treatment center, not critics, but certainly have tried to do a lot of research to figure out what is effective treatment and what is not. And 
there are 14,500 treatment centers in this country, and I'm telling you right now, I can only send people to 10, physically 10 residential right. treatment centers. So, you know, again, like this is very complicated and we want everybody to be informed and actually take the proper steps to being able to get health, sustain health and building really strong long-term recovery plans for the whole family. Mm -hmm. You guys are freaking awesome. Dr. Dunlap, Dan, do you have any last words, anything else? You I just, I'm so honored to be, uh, be able to do this and I just appreciate Live for Lally and everybody who's been here today. Thank you. It's been a great time meeting you. Awesome. You as well. Live for Lally means a lot to me and to many, many of my patients. It's very nice to be here. Oh, well, thank you for contributing and teaching all of us something. Thanks so much. All right. We will see you guys next time. If substance use in any way impacts you, you are not alone. Help and support are available. Live for Lolly is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, safety, and education for patients and families impacted by substance use disorders and other mental health conditions. For information or help, please visit us at liveforlolly.org or on any of our social media channels. Call 844 584 524 or email us at info at liveforlolly.org.